This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their safe spaces, their bubbles around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay in Dunedin, and I am joined by Mawera Karatai in Fakatani. Ki ora Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's, How's Fakatani for today? Uh, it's overcast and warm, so it's kind of nice, actually. I can hear the grass growing. Is the city back to town? Is it, does it call itself a city? Is the town buzzing? Is it back, oh, to, no. back to busy? It is. Um, way too much. Um, actually, I was in town the other day and I just thought, gosh, there are so many people around and I miss the quiet. I miss the being able to hear all the birds and um, and you can smell civilization again. And we are joined in St. Leonard's, Dunedin, by Martin Andrew. Welcome, Kia Martin. Samuel. Kia both of you. There's no point asking how the weather's doing there because I can look out the window and see the same weather. If you can't see the twoies that I've got chirping in the garden and the bellbirds, which are encircling my sugar water, it's just fantastic out there. It has been a good season for them. It's been a wonderful season for all of the wildlife. As we know, they've all returned and they're behaving fantastically out there, chirping away beautifully for me. Is this week the, the bird count? I think it is. It could well be. Perhaps people who voted for whatever bird it was We'll be happy this, this No, week. not that one. The the garden survey <laughs> where we're supposed to go out and count what we've got. Could well be, yes. Um, I'm dreading if that's the case because there are so many of them out there. Yeah. 73 million wax eyes. That's not a... Something along those lines. That's yeah. not a bad problem to have, is it? No, the more birds, the merrier we will be, that's for sure. I much prefer birds to human beings, you know, a lot of the time. I also prefer plants to human beings a lot of the time. But that's just my weird way. So how was lockdown for you, Martin? Lockdown was a kind of paradise, a kind of utopia, because I'm an introvert and I really enjoy the inward spaces, quite literally. I found myself becoming suddenly like a well of creation. Every day I like to start my day ordinarily with a bit of reflective writing. It's the first thing I do to get myself into the day. But during lockdown, I started this writing. I didn't stop. It just (laughs) kept on coming. And it was quite an enjoyable time because it gave me permission to let out all the stuff I had inside for so long that I really wanted to let out. And a lot of it came out as poetry, a lot of it came out as academic writing, a lot of it came out as songs. All kinds of stuff were kind of wanting to come out and I just enjoyed the creative flow. That's interesting because lots of people reported that they intended to do that sort of thing, but really didn't find the headspace for it. I found the headspace um, very easy to find. I saw this as an opportunity right from the beginning. 
and I'm not one to let an opportunity pass me by. When an opportunity or a space in life to um, do something happens, I'm the one who's going to grab it by the whatever part of the body I should say here. Let's take the first of your music choices. Who have you got for us first? Well, I've got Miriam Makiba. I love Miriam Makiba. Um, she was known as Mama Africa. She's a fantastic South African actress, songwriter, singer. She's a kind of Renaissance every woman. And I love her because she's the United Nations ambassador. She was a civil rights activist. She was close with Nelson Mandela. Um, she did creative alliances with people like Harry Belafonte in the 1950s. And she's an all-round wonderful person. She even died on the job. She was singing a concert at the age of 77 or 78. And that is when she passed away. I would love to have a passing in the process of doing what I love, just like Miriam Makiba. And the um, song which I had chosen is Erev Shel Shoshanim, which is a Hebrew song, a Hebrew wedding song, actually, and very common in Israel and recorded by numerous um, well-known people from 1957 onwards, people like Harry Belafonte, and even Nana Mascori and a wealth of other people. And um, this song was also used as belly, mu belly dance music. So um, it's a fantastic, gentle love song that translates as evening, at, evening of roses or evening of lilies. Let us go out to the grove. Myrrh, perfumes and frankincense is the carpet under your feet. So it's one of those um, pieces which is beautiful poetry but which transcends, transcends cultures. And I love here the fact that Miriam Makeba, um, the queen of African music, Mama Africa, is singing in Hebrew, because for me, this kind of articulates the bridge between cultures, which is so meaningful to us in today's world where Black Lives Matter and other issues like that. It's these people who have the ability to bridge who are the people who really deserve to have statues made of them at the moment. So Miriam is my first choice. Shoshana, it's a fin of the 
How did the actual work go during lockdown? The actual work was absolutely fantastic because, as you may know, most of my actual work now involves mentoring of our doctoral learners, our doctoral students, and our master's learners. And most of that happens automatically during um, any period by Zoom or what have you, all of those different technologies. And um, we learned to mine the affordances of these technologies in order to maximize the communicative potential of our interactions. And it's really great to be able to call it work, but actually hold creative, critical conversations with people. Nobody is more blessed than those of us who can um, teach and learn and collaborate together at the same time through critical conversations and um, I feel extremely lucky to have so many inspiring people from all around the country um, interested in embarking on a learning journey with me and my colleagues. And I see this as just a fantastic way to survive lockdown, endure lockdown, and take people to perhaps another stage just through the asset that I have become through you know, experience and a little bit of knowledge and a lot of empathy. I like that notion of let's call it work. Well, we could call it work. Um, I actually call it what I love to do. And my great critical moment in life was when I left Australia, um, where I had a professorship at a university over there. And I thought to myself, am I allowed to swear here? And I thought to myself, God damn it. Um, I don't want this life anymore. I don't want to be in a space where I am continually put in a box and ticked off. I don't want to be in a place where I am a commodity and where I am owned by a company. And if anybody ever says the word KPI to me, they're likely to be punched on the nose because I am allergic to all forms of weasel words, which is one reason why I can't attend staff meetings because they frequently do crop up and I'm the person giggling in the corner of the Zoom screen because somebody has used the weasel word. Um, in fact, during our staff meetings back in Australia at the university there, I invented the game of staff meeting bingo, which was a lot of fun. All of the weasel words were put on the grid and um, we would try to get create, recreate complete lines of all of these wonderful weasel words like incentivization and uh, managerialism and KPI, and you name all of these weasel words that come up every staff meeting, innovation, stuff like that. And we would shout out very loudly in the middle of the meeting, bingo! <laughs> and they knew that, that, that we were all being rebellious and that we were parodying and mocking this some fake process that happened during all of these staff meetings where fait accompli were presented to us one after another without consultation. 
So I, I always find a way to get humor out of something which is actually quite tragic. And this was an example of myself doing that. And this critical moment led to me leaving Australia and coming to New Zealand and deciding that what I would actually do is only do stuff that I love. If it's bullshit, sorry, if it's bullshit, I will say that, then it's not for me. I will call a spade a spade now. I have the courage to do that. <laughs> and I will choose the things that I love and do the things that I enjoy. I will spend time with family. I will write. I will collect my antiques and my little collectibles and my movie star photographs. And I will enjoy loving working with the learners who enrich my life. Talking about collectibles, you're surrounded by pottery and a Viking helmet. Yes, I am. The Viking helmet is there um, because I was involved in so many Zoom meetings, about 150 Zoom meetings during lockdown, and they became quite tedious. So I took to wearing different hats <laughs> for different uh, meetings, and the Viking helmet was one of the ones that I would put on just to um, amuse people and bring a new dynamic to the Zoom meeting. I mean, they do get very, very tedious. So I have got about 25 hats behind me, which I would wear to different meetings, um, simply because I don't think the Zoom meeting should always be deadly serious. They can be fun as well. And behind me, a part of my little hobby, where I actually buy and sell antiques and also collect bits and pieces as well. Um, I have a life now which is made up of bits and pieces of work, all of which I love and all of which bring me joy. And, um, yeah, getting junk and passing it on is something I love because it's a form of recycling, really. And I consider what I do repatriating objects to their rightful owners. <laughs> An act of reunion. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, na mihi aroha no kia koutou koutou ho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope that whatever is happening around you and wherever you are, that this journey that we're all on together throughout time and space for all infinite eternity is revealing itself to you as a most rewarding adventure for the beautiful spark of consciousness that you are, a triumph of nature's art, connected to all life in an infinite web, and here making things better, whether consciously or not, contributing your unique energy to this universe. So thank you for being born, and thank you for physically manifesting at this time. We're so lucky to have you here. So I had a wonderful day today with a very wonderful school who came to visit me at Orokanui Eco Sanctuary. And of course, at the moment, we're only open to the public, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And so for the rest of the time, I can have my wonderful education groups very exclusively. The only group, the only people in the Eco Sanctuary, apart from our very hardworking, intrepid and impressive rangers, and our very hardworking and kind and giving volunteers so we're just so lucky to have this and whole sanctuary to ourselves it's really amazing and the group I was working with today is really one of my favorite kinds of groups to work with I love all the groups 
but this lovely, lovely group of children have had a rough time, had a hard time, had a difficult time, had a challenging time fitting in in the school environment. And this is something I can completely understand and relate to because I feel, of course, that as a species of animal, the product of literally billions of years of co-evolution on this paradise planet, we are not evolved to be inside constantly and we have not evolved to be talked at constantly and although many schools don't do this now many schools are really fantastic and doing a lot of inquiry learning and nature-based learning which is so so wonderful it's still a difficult environment for many people as are all environments for all people at different times of their lives and obviously when we go from environment to environment and we move between states of being often we're carrying the impacts of one environment to the next and so it may not be the school environment purely that is challenging there may be a range of different environments that are challenging and cumulatively they are having a flow-on effect so with groups like this it's really fantastic for me because I feel I can really just pour out so much love and appreciation and attention towards these beautiful people and really encouraging them and reminding them of who they are and what they can do and really welcoming them into a safe space which of course the eco sanctuary is and for them I really really hope that it's an opportunity to let go of a lot of the identity aspects that are reinforced to them in these unhelpful environments they can let go of those and they can remember who they are unique perfect beautiful and free, free to be whoever they want and however they want. And of course, as we get older, we become more and more independent of the routines and the schedules of various environments. But it's so important, whatever age we are, wherever we are, that we remember that we deserve to feel within ourselves accepted and loved and appreciated. And that within us at all times, there is a sanctuary. So I hope that for all of you, you've had a wonderful day. And I'll look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're talking about workplace bingo. If anybody was to get even a line on 2020 bingo, then they must have had some real foresight. How well, are your, that's right. How are your learners managing to... Did we decide that pivot wasn't the word we liked? Pirouette, their their professional practice? Pivot, pirouette, whatever you want to call it. People are learning to think on their feet, to reflect in action, and people are really embracing the opportunity to explore their resilience and to explore their agility and bring all of the human assets they have inside them to bear and find new strengths, new ways of doing things. And of course, technology and leveraging its possibility plays a major role in this. But it's also amazing how inventive a lot of people can be when push comes to shove. And indeed, push has come to shove. And I've had a number of um, wonderful things happening with my learners. Um, and some of them have managed to to collect more data than they would have done had it been kind of 
face-to-face simply because they have found that there are affordances in technological media which are not present in face-to-face. We tend to think that the opposite is true. But when you can find the potential in the software, in the technology, you are able to communicate in a way which maximizes people's responsiveness. And I've been quite happy with the way that the most vulnerable of my learners have proved to be responsive during this time. There are one or two who have had to put their work a little bit on ice. And during that time, you throw lots of literature at them and say, this is a good time for you to do tons of reading. You're going to have to do tons of reading anyway. This is a very good time for you to understand methodology. Here's tons of resources on methodology. Write your methodology section. And later on, fingers crossed, you might be able to do a kind of hybrid data collection, which involves some face-to-face and a little bit of um, digital recording work as well. What our colleague Richard Mitchell is describing it as is the mother of all learning moments. Yes, I quite like that description, other than the fact that it makes me think of Ruth Richardson, who I would really (laughs) rather not be thinking of at this moment, because it gives me an image of great nightmare from my childhood. Um, Ruth Richardson was an absolute horror when she spoke about the mother of all budgets. So that particular metaphor, whenever I hear it, can't can't fail but to give me a monstrous image, I'm afraid. But it is the... it is. For, for many of our learners, it is the what they had intended to do was turns out to be a placeholder for the interesting thing that they're dealing with now, as they have to really think about what is the essence of their professional practice rather yes. than the day-to-day what they do. That is absolutely right. They are drilling deeply into their hearts and souls. They are gaining a very strong sense of what their grounding is and who they can be. It really is becoming much more of a journey through the self rather than an instrumental project with outcomes. And I'm finding that the opportunity to speak about the human project in this space is so incredibly valuable because we are completely unable to separate the project from the person. And for me, this um, plays into my kind of way of understanding and thinking about the world that we are all present within the world and the ways that we see and understand the world impact on our own kind of academic methodologies and epistemologies and all those other ologies that people loathe and hate and which should appear on um, staff meeting bingo by the way anyway all of those ologies um come to the fore and they're grounded in people's experience and um, this is what I am loving. One of the wonderful pivots that has happened is that one of my doctoral learners has discovered that she's in a perfect position to do her doctoral studies on her um, health institution's COVID-19 response and looking at ways in which the responses to this moment in history, this mother of all moments, um, offers new possibilities for investigation um, and enabling her and her team to come up with a plan. 
so that it may no, never happen again for that organization in the same way. There's plenty of learning that can happen from this event that can be brought forward should it happen again. So all of that is really valuable learning that could not and would not have happened without coronavirus. Thank you, coronavirus. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller, urban explorer and conversationalist, observing city life in lockdown. Hi there, everybody out there in the big bubble land of New Zealand and maybe beyond. I don't know. I don't know how far this is reaching into the universe, but hello. And uh, this is Liesel, and I hope you are having one of those magical, fabulous days that um, we can create for ourselves, uh, even if <laughs> the circumstances around our day are not going as well. It's all about your imagination, isn't it? It's about your environment that you create for yourself. So if it's all feeling a bit awful, hey, just imagine a better environment and maybe it will start to become a reality. Hmm, I don't know. Try it out. See what happens. So I, as usual, thinking about various things and having conversations with friends, we we're talking about rescue dogs and in particular the greyhounds, greyhound rescue dogs, because, um, well, it started off with, you know, dogs, different sized dogs have different lengths of life, and, you know, the bigger dogs tend not to live as long as the, the little dogs, which is sort of counterintuitive in my head, but I guess that makes sense um, in some ways. And then we were talking about greyhounds and how retired greyhounds aren't actually that active because they've almost been worn out by by their uh, sports, so their sporting activity, and um, these adopted, these dogs that you can adopt, I don't know if you're familiar, but they have usually had, you know, a career in greyhound racing, and then they've retired, and now they adopt them out as pets for people, and um, yeah, according to quite a few people that I've, well, I've got a couple of friends with, with retired greyhound pets, and uh, just other stories I've heard, they're not very active, which is sort of seems interesting. I, I would have thought they would be, but no. And um, <laughs> my friend and I today were just discussing how, you know, they chase this sort of rabbit or this, this object around the, the course or around the track that they never get to catch, like ever. I, well, I don't know. Maybe they let it catch. Maybe they let them catch it every so often. But I'm guessing basically they run after something that they, they just don't get to catch. And we were just talking about what is the psychological effect of that, you know, if you are always chasing something that you can't attain, you can't reach, um, and it's always just there a little bit further ahead of you, and you are running after it as fast as you can with the intention of getting it, and you're told this is the track that you're on, and you must get that thing, and I want to get that thing, and... Am I taking this in a direction that might be an analogy for something else? Yes, I am, because <laughs> we sort of came up with our own little analogy of the pink rabbit on the back of the truck driving ahead of us. You know, the pink rabbit is maybe what the greyhounds chase. So we've got the pink rabbit on the back of the truck, and uh, it's driving ahead of us in life um, with the promise of success and all things that we've ever dreamed of. And yet it's always just that little bit ahead of us. And even if we manage to catch the rabbit, 
um, it's a dirty old pink rabbit that somebody else has kind of, you know, had as their, their favourite toy all their life and it's a bit, bit gunky and a bit yucky and do we really want that old sort of dirty rabbit? I think, you know, the analogy being that what, are, what is this pace of life that we are running at, that we are constantly running after something that's ahead of us that we think is our happiness and yet I don't believe it is and I believe a little bit like the greyhounds, they um, exhaust themselves, they, they actually run out of juice after a few years because they're chasing something unobtainable and it must also become very disheartening in lots of ways because you get to the end of your life and all you've been doing is chasing something you can't get and I think the lockdown period gave us a pause on that chase that sort of constant pace to get somewhere and I just ask what is it that we were missing when we stopped lockdown you know obviously economic um, there were economic repercussions and all sorts of things that obviously we we missed in some ways but in terms of our lives and the quality of our lives, what were we missing out on when we slowed down, when we actually paused? For me personally, I have noticed amping back up and that track has started to sort of like lights flicked on on the Greyhound racing track again and the pink rabbits gotten warmed up and started to whir around the track again. I don't want to be on that track. So I don't know about you, but I am thinking about this. So i leave you with that, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Take care. Of all the changes we've seen in the last couple of months, what do you think will stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? What I hope will stick the most is that we have a completely different attitude towards the cruise ship industry. The cruise ships are my, are my bane, because not only are they responsible for a a great deal of the evils of the world and um, pollutions of all sorts and um, the impacts on marine creatures through the sonars that they create as well as the plastics another ship that comes out of them it just makes me sick to death to think about these monsters of the of the sea but also the fact that most of the companies who run them are in tax havens for goodness sake so they don't do a single bit of good for the world. They're a completely parasitic organization. And um, this period has shown us that a lot of these cruise ships are really out of the rhyme of the ancient mariner or the Marie Celeste. For me, they are ships of death. And I was completely distressed to read that a lot of the Filipino staff who are used as outsource staff, you know, Oh, it's like upstairs, downstairs in a cruise ship. The downstairs staff, the people who work in the kitchens and shove the coal and the diesel into the steamers, that those people were being treated like absolute crap and that all of the money that they received as salary, they had to pay for Wi-Fi while they were at sea. This company wouldn't even pay for their Wi-Fi and they had absolutely no way of communicating with their parents or their families or their friends. And they were stuck in the middle of nowhere. And I thought that this was so absolutely inhumane um, and completely intolerable that it made my um, desire 
to fight against the cruise ship industry even stronger. It would be good if an outcome from this was that tourism could become slower and more engaging. But then during level four, we were walking around on the streets and saying, oh, there's no cars. This is nice. Let's let's keep that. And we've we've happily rushed back to rushing around like crazy things. So do we have much hope for those good things to, to really stick? Of course, we do have hope. It will take a little bit longer. I was reminded very early this morning of the fact that I hated cars because outside my house, they are um, digging up the road at the moment and there are potholes. And at 5.30 in the morning, the trucks were going, ka-clump, ka-clump, ka-clump. Usually it's kind of flat, but today, my God, it was insomnia city. And I found myself getting up with road rage this morning. And the road rage was, I really wish that they would they would fix those potholes so that I can actually get the night's sleep I need in order to give a coherent interview and in order to talk to my learners today. Um, what, we really need, what we really need is to put all that freight onto the railway. We do. Fixing the um, potholes is isn't going to solve it. This is one of my very, very... Um, big bugbears as well. I think all of that freight should go on the railways. The railways need to be resurrected. I'm very unhappy at the moment that Dunedin Railways has been mothballed. Let's take the second of your music choices. Who have you got for us this time? I've chosen something which is wildly kitsch and wildly unpopular. I have chosen Anima Scori. Um because when I was a little child and I couldn't sleep at night, I was living in the town of Reading in the United Kingdom, just around the corner, incidentally, from Forbury Park, where we've just had a terror attack. Anyway, that's by the by. Um, in the town of Reading, I would hide under the covers with my little transistor radio and listen to Radio Luxembourg. Um, there were not many radio stations available in those days, and Radio Luxembourg only played foreign stuff. And I fell in love with all kinds of foreign music and with the sounds of different languages. And I still have that love of languages today. So Nana Mascori came on the radio more than anybody else, not in a Benny Hill kind of way, but in a wonderful way. Um, and it introduced me once again to internationality. So the song which I have selected, Den Itanisi, Den Itanisi, um, which means that was no island, that was a beast that lay beneath the sea, that was the mermaid, Alexander the Great's sister. It's a, it's a Cretan fable. Um, Nana Muscori herself came from the Isle of Crete. And this was a song which came out in the early 70s. And during Nana Muscori's famous TV show, this is one of the ones that she and her band, the Athenians, played regularly. And it was lively and animated. And we had Nana in her caftan looking wonderful with her glasses. And I always loved everything to do with ancient Greece and ancient Greek mythology. So this piece really, really appealed to me at the age of seven. And I still have a sentimental attachment to it today. I frequently go and look on YouTube and watch her and the Athenians singing this piece. It is so sonorous and wonderful and has such a kind of ancient feeling to it. It doesn't feel like it was 
made in the late 60s, early 70s. It really feels like something from ancient Greek times. Thank you.
What do you think we can learn from the responses to this pandemic for humanity's bigger, longer-term, intergenerational challenges, climate change, social justice, and so on? I think that we can learn that we need to be more community-focused, that we need to be more localised. The movement of buying local has really taken off, and it is quite fantastic to see the people of Dunedin, at least, supporting not only things like farmers' market, but local producers and local tradespeople. And um, I think that this movement um, has become quite national, and I think that this will have implications when it comes to people thinking, well, shall I buy that cheap crap from China or shall I try to find something closer to home? I think people are starting to critically think about the implications of their choices when it comes to purchasing foodstuffs and commodities. And I very much hope that the Buy New Zealand Made slogan, which I remember from the 1970s, can come back again because we really do need to um, we do need to move away from globalization to localization, and I think that um, as you said before, um, everything needs to be needs to be slower, and I think that um, having a slow quality of life in all things will have implications also for travel. Um, a lot of people at the moment are saying, "I haven't got an income. It's so sad." Uh, my income has been cut. And I say to them, well, what does that mean? You can't have international travel. So what? What's the sacrifice? You don't get to go to Noosa this year or next year. What's the point of Noosa anyway? There's so much more wonderful stuff locally that you can see, for goodness sake. Um, Don't leave home till you've seen the country. That was another 1970s slogan, wasn't it? And I think we've come back to the 70s in many ways when we kind of had all of those values before neoliberal ideology contaminated New Zealand culture with Roger Douglas and horrible Ruth Richardson back in circa 1986 and onwards, I think that we are going back to a kind of nostalgic version of New Zealand as she used to be. And I think people are starting to embrace the Fred Dagg era. <laughs> if I could put on another another song here, I'd give you Fred Dagg's gumboots, but perhaps there's not time for that. We'll go out to that, shall we? <laughs> I was lining up to, to go out to Benny Hill, but gumboots is better. <laughs> what do you think is the role of, not necessarily the creative sector, but creative thinking in our... Uh, I was going to say going forward, but you'd go bingo on me. Um, <laughs> I would. In, in terms of, and, and because, because it's another question is about the relationship between a recovery and a regeneration, but we'll go for the creative sector first. The creative sector includes a lot of people who are the philosophers and the prophets of our age, the songwriters, the poets, um, the Kaupapa Māori, the people who who have knowledge of the connections between the natural world and humanity, the people who have empathy. And these are the people who are needed at the moment and the voices that are needing most to be heard and heard very, very widely. And quite luckily, we are hearing these voices increasingly through cyber activism and through other forms 
of um, communication, which is mediated by technology. And we can hear these voices all the more in the context of Black Lives Matter and in the context of other social movements, um, such as social movements that um, are currently taking out Donald Trump. And my great hope moving forward is that we can take out Bolsonaro in Brazil as well, because to my mind, he is the most anti-creative and dangerous human being that I know of on the planet at the moment. He is guilty of genocide. He is destroying the lungs of the earth. And he is a complete monster. He's the antithesis of what we want. And many people are starting to wake up and realize that the monsters of the world are telling lies because they have vested interests and because they encapsulate greed of all of the seven deadly sins. Who would have thought that greed would turn out to be the deadliest of the lot? And the creative sector are the sector who can possibly save all of this. I was very enheartened this year, this week, to read about the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra um, giving their first concert. And it's as if the Kraken is awaking. It's as if the arts are ready to um, launch themselves. But it's really, really going to be a struggle. We read, on the other hand, in Australia, that university degrees and the humanities are going to double in price because Australia has a policy of deliberately trying to dumb down people and remove critical thinking from the curriculum because it's threatening to the Hillsong Church and the true rulers of Australia. <laughs> so I think it is incredibly important for all of us in education, because education is creativity, um, from a very, very early age to bring all of that energy forward. I've also been working with learners in Indonesia and Vietnam and trying very hard to bring this kind of influence to the learners who I've been working with in those countries. And um, all of those countries are very heavily infected by Americanization and materialism and capitalism. And there's a little bit of Trump support there. And I always cap any reference to Trump with a little bit of truth. And I've become known for being a little bit perverse and critical. But that's what the world needs. We have to call a spade a spade. We have to call people out without being woke. We have to be true. We have to be honest. We have to have integrity. And most of all, we have to do it in a creative way that doesn't alienate people and that carries people along with us, convinces people in a bottom-up way, and most of all, by embodying in our own actions the way perhaps that we wish the world could be moving forward. Do you think we're looking for a recovery or a regeneration? How are you seeing that playing out? It's ideal to think that we will have a recovery, but in order to have a recovery, we need to rethink capitalism. And we need to, I suppose, begin with small steps and think about things like green capitalism and something which may be a little bit, a little bit more palatable 
to those masses who read the Otago Daily Times every day and uh, make comments about the need for more cars and parking spaces in Dunedin. That's the kind of people who we are really fighting here, the people who can't see another way and will never be able to see another way, and try somehow to teach those people that there may be alternatives. You will be a healthier person and your family in the future will be healthier if you can accept that there are alternative ways and that we are born with legs and that there are beautiful places for walking in this place and we need to get people away from the anti-cycling lobby. I don't know why the anti-cycling lobby is so strong in Dunedin. It's almost a kind of fascistic movement here. And I have seen so many cyclists glassed or have um, the door of the car opened onto them, causing injury. It gives me great, great pain to see that. People are just not keeping their eyes open. Safety issues aside, there are kind of health issues. Um, ever since I've been cycling, my thighs have become rugby players' thighs. I'm feeling like Superman at the moment, thanks to cycling. It's brought back, you know, the body I thought that I had lost as a man in my 20s. And, yeah, the health effects are fantastic. And surely everyone is interested in health. Surely everyone is interested in the air that circulates in our lungs and in the wildlife around us and in the other creatures and um, quality of life. So perhaps there are ways of selling this message, but perhaps we need to begin by understanding that the big picture is that we have to dismantle capitalism as we know it, perhaps in small steps. So I have some questions to end with and almost negative time to do them, so we'll have to rattle through these. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? I've already mentioned the greatest success that I've had in the last couple of years, and that is my ability to completely change my life when I moved from Australia back to New Zealand and I decided that I would try to live a life outside capitalism. And I decided that, that I would try to do this as much as I can. Of course, I have to pay electricity bills like everybody else. So you're never completely out of it. But I thought that what I would do is seek a life which was made up of lots of things that I love. Um, I do my antiques business. I do my online tutoring. I do my Otago Polytechnic work with DPP and MPP learners, which involves having critical conversations and which involves bringing empathy to people. I do lots of community work. I do some transnational work. I do some creative work and I do some research. So basically, it, asking the question, what do I love, is a better question than what's my next career move. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes, the collection of people doing good work. So you're on our team of people in our mansion. What's the superpower that's got you there? The superpower that's got me here is my love of listening to other people. I really love stories, and I do believe that stories are the most powerful form of research. And they are also testament to the fact that every human being is creative. As long as any of us can tell a story, we have the ability to create. And 
and to share with others. After all, fairy tales, ballads, um, oral stories appear in every culture across the world and are very, very important to Kaupapa Māori as well. So stories for me are hope. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? I consider myself to be an activist, yes. Um, I can be a political activist, and two of my recent academic outputs have been incredibly, um, incredibly political activist works, both of them rather controversial, and people might blush and think that um, there's another side to me that they didn't know existed when they read these works. But they're both damning critiques of the university system in Australia under neoliberalism. And one of them is coming out in September this year in a journal run by the Australian um, Tertiary Teachers Union. So that's something for you all to look out for, <laughs> something rather incendiary that will make your hair curl, but which is completely grounded in the stories of myself and others who experienced trauma during the neoliberal occupation of tertiary education. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Um, be authentic at all times. Be yourself at all times. Do what you love at all times. Never let somebody tell you that you are something that you are not. Don't listen to other people's bullshit. And when you know somebody is speaking bullshit, call them out. Have the courage to say, well, from my own position, from my own experience, I don't agree with what you're saying. I think that you need to go away and read beyond Wikipedia. Thank you very much for that. Mawira, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, you reminded me, Martin, that I need to ban the Wikipedia URL from our new server at our new house so that my children don't ever get in the habit of referencing it. Thank you. You're welcome. Wikipedia is not that bad. There are many, many other things out there in internet land which are far, far, far more dangerous. And perhaps they are the greatest risk to our society today. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe to the podcast wherever you like to do such things. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyers Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani and Martin Andrew in St. Leonard's, Dunedin. We hope you enjoyed the show. Fiora. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.